Hey everyone, I hope you're all doing well. We are continuing our study on heroes of faith, where we are looking at various men and women of scripture uh, to learn more about them, who they are, as well as uh, look at some of the important truths that their life uh, uh, teaches us and how we can um, learn from them to live out our faith more fully as well. Now, last week we looked at Abraham as we considered um, his life and who he was. He was known as the father of our faith, and uh, we saw that he showed um, how to live for God in many amazing ways. He did some wonderful things uh, of faith, like uh, leaving his home for a foreign uh, land that God uh, told him to go to, also being willing to sacrifice his one and only son to God. Uh, but he also failed in some pretty spectacular ways as well, like giving his wife to Pharaoh to save himself, as well as uh, having a son with Hagar instead of waiting for God. And so he was kind of a mixed bag uh, of faith where he did some really great things, but also some uh, really bad things. And that uh, I hope was very encouraging to many of us because it shows that Abraham is just like most of us. We have some successes, we have some failures, but through and through it's our faith in God and his faithfulness to us uh, that makes all the difference in the world. Now, this week we're going to consider the life and of uh, what is arguably one of the most important figures in the Old Testament, aside from God, of course, and that is the life of Moses. Now, Moses is an incredibly important figure in Judaism and in Christianity as well. He is said to have written the first uh, five books of the Bible, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which are called the five books of Moses. Uh, these books tell the, uh, of the founding of the nation of Israel and the giving of the law of God that we see um, playing an important role throughout the rest of Scripture. Now, there's probably uh, more written about Moses in the Bible than any other Old Testament person, which is very impressive. But there's so much written about Moses, um, and because of that, we probably won't be able to get to all of it. We're going to do a very quick um, and brief overview of his life, but there's undoubtedly going to be some things uh, that we miss out on. Uh, we're going to pause where we can uh, long enough to consider some interesting parts, um, but um, I, again, I just encourage each of you to, uh, in your own time, just read through his life, read through uh, how God used uh, Moses and how um how it teaches us many important things about our own life as we seek to live out the calling that God has placed on each of our lives. Now, the first place that we need to um, begin uh, to look at the life of Moses is um, in the book of Genesis, because uh, in, at the end of Genesis, we see the 12 sons of Jacob, who uh, his name was later changed uh, to Israel by God. Uh, we see Jacob and his 12 sons are in Egypt after a famine came, and God provided them a refuge through the oversight of Joseph, Joseph who was elevated uh, to second command of all of Egypt. Now, it was under Joseph's leadership that the uh, the people there in Egypt, both Hebrews and Egyptians, uh, in order to buy grain and things like that, they began selling their animals. And then when all that was sold, then they began to sell their own property. So they, they no longer owned uh, their livestock. They no longer uh, owned their property. And eventually they even began to sell themselves. Um, and that led into many of the people in Egypt becoming slaves of Pharaoh. This is important in our discussion of Moses because by the time we pick up in Exodus, which is about 450 years later, 
the Hebrews have been enslaved to the Egyptians and have begun to begin uh, to be horribly uh, mistreated. And so that all uh, began in the last few chapters of the book of Genesis and then leads right into the book of Exodus where we first uh, read about Moses. But in Exodus chapter 1 verses 8 through 10 it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mighty than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us. And so go up out of the land. And so we see here that the Egyptians begin to get really nervous and kind of paranoid about the Hebrews living in their land. They've forgotten about Joseph and all the things that the Hebrews have done to help Egypt. And so they begin enslaving them and mistreating them and abusing them, eventually getting so uh, paranoid to the point where they begin ordering uh, male children, born uh, Hebrew male children, uh, to be killed. Uh, this prompts Moses' mother, Jacobed, uh, to try and hide baby Moses for as long as she can. Now, it's no surprise that this doesn't last very long. After about three months uh, with a newborn uh, infant, it becomes impossible for her to keep him a secret any longer. So, uh, running out of options, she decides to make a waterproof basket uh, out of reeds and pitcher, which, uh, which is kind of a, a tar-type substance to help waterproof the basket, she makes what many translations of the Bible um, call an ark. Again, this references back and points back to another character that we uh, talked about a few weeks back, to Noah, that Noah made an ark, and through that he was saved uh, through the flood that God brought through uh, the waters that overflowed the earth. Uh, and here we see Moses as well being put into an ark, uh, being saved by the waters of the Nile. So uh, again, this all kind of ties together. So Jacob, then she places baby Moses into this basket, into this ark, and she sends them down the Nile bank among the reeds. Now, this is an incredible act of faith, as there are countless dangers in the form of crocodiles, hippos, not to mention that anyone uh, uh, around could stumble across the baby. And like today, not everyone is kind and charitable and things of that nature. There's some things that are worse than death. And so this is an incredible act of faith upon uh, on her part. Moses's older sister, Miriam, goes along and she watches and follows the basket down the Nile until it's discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. Now, uh, while Pharaoh and his daughter remain nameless in the Exodus account, which is, again, another really interesting detail, that uh, here are the most uh, powerful and important people in the world at that time, uh, Pharaoh and his daughter and his family. But in the biblical account, they're not even important enough to mention by name. Instead, uh, the Hebrews and the, the slaves are, uh, in fact, mentioned by name. Uh, but anyways, the uh, um, Pharaoh and his daughter, they remain nameless in our biblical account. But Jewish rabbis believe her to be a woman by the name of Bithia. Now, um, Bithia is mentioned in 1 Chronicles 4.17, and it reads, Bithia, the daughter of Pharaoh, whom Mered took and who uh, and she conceived and bore, uh, bore Miriam, Shammai, and Ishba, the son of Ishmaelah. And uh, the belief from this is that she, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, converted to Judaism when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. That after she had seen 
the plagues of Egypt, the power of the God of the Hebrews, she abandoned her Egyptian family and their idols, and she began worshiping the God of Israel and married uh, Merid uh, from the family of Caleb. Uh, that's uh, who this uh, woman would have married into according to the genealogy in 1 Chronicles uh, 4.17. This is uh, when she exchanged her, whatever her Egyptian name is, for the Hebrew name of Bithya, which means daughter of Yahweh or daughter of the Lord. And again, that's not saying that that is actually what, what occurred, but that is the, uh, the Jewish understanding as they uh, as they look at 1, uh, 1 Chronicles 4.17, they see who is this daughter of Pharaoh that married into the Hebrew line around this time? And they, they kind of point back to this Exodus account. So make that make of that what you will. So uh, we later learned that whoever she was, she felt pity on baby Moses and ended up uh, hiring Jacobed, Moses' mother, to raise him in Pharaoh's house. Now, what an incredible act of providence this was that here's Moses' mother who thought that she was going to have to uh, abandon her child, possibly um, place him in this basket in the Nile River, and, and maybe he would survive, maybe he, he wouldn't, but she, in all likelihood, would never see him again. And then, lo and behold, Pharaoh's daughter, the one who's calling for his death, uh, Pharaoh's daughter rescues him and then pays Moses' mother to raise her own child in the, um, the comforts and the opulence of uh, Pharaoh's household. Again, God is amazing and God is good and works all this out. So no, over the next 40 years, Moses is trained in the Egyptian language, laws, customs, and all that goes with being a part of Pharaoh's house. While at the same time, I also imagine that he's being taught by his mother, Jacobed, who is being paid to raise him. He's being taught the history and faith of the Hebrew people. And so he's he's kind of this bridge between, between these two worlds, the pagan world of the Egyptians and the world of the Hebrew people of God. Now, over the years, Moses is increasingly bothered by the unjust treatment of his fellow Hebrews by the Egyptians. In his heart, he knows that if it wasn't, a, if it wasn't for God's providence, he would either be dead um, or he would be under the whip of the merciless ta uh, taskmasters. And so he knew that uh, he uh, could very well have been in the very same situation. I'm sure that just weighed upon his heart and his mind uh, throughout his time seeing the unjust treatment of the Hebrews. Now, one day, he's shocked by the brutal beating of a Hebrew slave, and his anger just bursts forth. All that pent-up uh, frustration and righteous indignation of what's going on, and he kills this Egyptian taskmaster who's beaten another Hebrew. Now, uh, this is an incredibly serious uh, crime in uh, Egypt. This is uh, like striking Pharaoh himself, which would have merit, uh, merited the death penalty. So Moses quickly hides the body in the sand and then hopes that no one discovers what he's done. But according to Scripture, the very next day, Moses intervenes as two Hebrews are fighting, and they mockingly tell him that he needs to mind his own business. And one of them uh, says, according to Scripture, Who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Now, this is ironic because, again, God is going to make Moses a, a kind of like a ruler or prince and a judge over the people. Uh, but at this time, it's, sent, it's meant to be kind of a ridicule over, um, over Moses 
uh, as to what he's done. So Moses realizes that uh, that word about what he's done is spreading and that it's just a matter of time before Pharaoh hears and condemns him to death. So he runs away uh, as far as he can. Now, Moses ends up fleeing into the wilderness and finds himself in the land of Midian, which is a region on the other side of the Sinai Peninsula. Now, according to scripture, the Midianites were descendants from one of the wives that Abraham took after Sarah died. Uh, There are uh, also people, um, these are also people that uh, Joseph's brothers sold Joseph into slavery to who ended up delivering him to Egypt. And so the Midians would uh, show up uh, time and time again throughout Israel's history. They would battle with them as they wandered in the wilderness. And then they also end up in the book of Judges as one of the enemies of the people of Israel who keep going in uh, to the promised land to uh, pester and to oppress uh, the Israelites. And so when Moses enters into the land of Midian, he rescues seven women who are trying to um, water their, their flocks by this well. And they're being harassed by these other uh, male shepherds. And so this, again, shows the heart of Moses, who seems to not be able to overlook injustice. There's just something that God has placed within his heart. When he sees people being abused, being oppressed, Moses just, he can't look away. He has to step in. He has to try to fight for those who are um, who are without a voice, who are without justice. And so the women end up, after being rescued by Moses, they invite him back to their father's house. Their father is Jesse. And there Moses stays with them over the next 40 years. Now, during this time, he marries one of the women that were there watering their flocks, uh, whose name is Zipporah. Now, she'll show up again in just a little bit, um, but uh, just keep that name uh, in the back of your mind. Now, eventually, as Moses is keeping the flocks of his father Jethro, uh, he, he is visited by God in the form of a burning bush. Now, a burning bush would not have been an uncommon sight in that dry wilderness uh, area where bushes can easily catch fire by the intense uh, heat and lack of water in that area. What caught Moses' attention, though, in this particular instance is that the bush uh, although it was on fire, it was not being consumed or burnt up. And now a lot of people uh, look at that and they see this as a great illustration uh, or um, picture of not only Moses, who he's just a man, he's a regular person, just like this bush is just a regular bush, but the presence of God is on him. Um, and it's not, um, and it uses uh, God uses him uh, in a very powerful way, in, in much the same way. This bush, although it's a regular bush, the presence of God is, is consuming it, burning it, but it's not being burnt up. Uh, a lot of other people also point to uh, this being an illustration of the Bible. The Bible is a book written by regular, everyday uh, men. But it's also divinely inspired. There's something special and unique about this book. Uh, This is also a great illustration of Jesus. Jesus was 100% man. He looked just like everyone else um, uh, in his day and time, talked like everyone else and so forth. But he was also consumed and and dwelt uh, with the uh, Spirit of God. He was 100% God, 100% man. And so this burning bush has been seen throughout church history as an illustration of the many ways that God brings together what is common and everyday, but also what is special, holy, and unique. Uh, Now, when Moses inspects and uh, uh, this bush, he encounters God, uh, who gives him instructions to go and liberate Hebrews from slavery in Egypt. 
Now, um, though Moses tries to give excuses to avoid this calling, God ends up prevailing and sends Moses uh, on his way, saying that uh, Aaron, his brother, will meet him as he travels back uh, to Egypt. Now, as Moses, he goes back, he gets a blessing from Jethro, who gives his permission for um, Moses and uh, Zipporah and their family to go. At this time, it's Moses, Zipporah, and uh, their son, uh, Gershom. Uh, now, as Moses and uh, Zipporah and Gershom head back uh, to Egypt, we read about this odd situation that happens in Exodus chapter 4. We read that Moses, his wife, and his son are uh, on their way to Egypt. Mo um, uh, Zipporah is pregnant with their second son, Eleazar, most likely at this time. Uh, Gershom is just a toddler uh as they're traveling back and they stop at an inn or an encampment on the way uh, to Egypt. We're not sure where this encampment would be, uh, but it was likely a place where travelers could come, rest, and uh, replenish their supplies. And it was at that particular time that God burns with anger towards Moses and tries to or seeks to kill Moses. Now, we're not told uh, what this means, what this looks like, or what's kind of really happening here, but I imagine that it's probably Moses... Uh, falls deathly ill uh, and is on the verge of death uh, at this particular point. Now, as we continue reading on in uh, Exodus 4, in this particular account, we read that Moses' wife, Zipporah, sees what's happening, sees Moses, again, most likely probably sick, on, on, uh, on his deathbed, uh, about to die, and she, she knows what's going on. She knows why this is happening. And so she acts very quickly. She takes a flint knife, this piece of uh, chiseled stone, and she begins to cut the foreskin off her son, Gershom. Now, this is evidently what had angered God because Moses immediately begins to get better. Now, this leaves us with many, many questions. Uh, why did the uncircumcision of uh, Gershom upset God so much? What's that all about? Why was that so important that he was about to kill Moses, this person that he had just called to go and liberate the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt? Why was this so important? And how did Zipporah know that this is why Moses was sick and uh, to begin with, what was it that, why didn't she just assume that Moses was just sick? Why did she know that this was an act of God and that this was an act of God because of Moses not circumcising his son Gershom? And how did she even know how to perform a circumcision? This was not something that customarily women uh, would do and be a part of. There were uh, Hebrew men who were skilled uh, in, in doing this particular thing. And so, how did she know to do this? So while we can only hypothesize um, about some of these issues, I'll submit just some of my thoughts for, for you to consider. Now, the circumcision of Moses' son was important because he's about to become the leader of the Hebrew people, the start of this new nation, and he's going to give them the law of God, which circumcision uh, is a huge part of the Jewish life. It is the sign of the covenant. They are the people of God. And in fact, in the law of Moses, it was said that if um, you did not circumcise your sons on the eighth day, then they were not a part of the covenant people of God. They were to be cut off uh, from uh, what God was doing through the Hebrews. And so this was a very important thing for Moses to do as he's about to lead these people uh, in this direction. And, and for him not to have circumcised his son uh, would lead others to trivialize the law of God, to see it as not that big of a deal, something that you can either do or not do. 
And so God took this very, very seriously. Now, some scholars also suggest that there may have been some tension between Moses and Zipporah uh, before this account even happened uh, regarding whether or not they should even circumcise their son. It was probably uh, oral tradition and custom in the Hebrew people before the law of Moses came about, it was something that uh, Abraham had taught his sons, which taught their sons, and so forth and so on. So Moses would have known that he was supposed to uh, circumcise uh, his boys, but there was probably a conflict between Moses, the Hebrew, and Zipporah, his Midianite wife, uh, in this particular um, area. And she probably did not understand or go along with the idea of uh cutting on their young born son. And so there was probably this conflict. Moses, maybe uh, seeking to avoid this conflict, uh, decided not to circumcise Gershom. And so um, God may have had to force this issue on Moses through this illness that he brought, which explains why Zipporah seems to be so anger, uh, angry uh, at this act. And she uh, uh, takes, after she cuts the foreskin off of Gershom, she then throws it at Moses' feet, which she proclaims, uh, you are a bridegroom of blood. And it seems to, that she is very upset that, uh, and blames Moses that this is actually happening. As he's laying there on his deathbed, um, she, uh, again, just kind of uh, berates him for having to do this. Imagine uh, she's probably uh, pregnant at this time with Eleazar, their their second son, and she's having to hold down this uh, little uh, uh, toddler, Gershom, as she cuts his foreskin off while her husband is, is sick unto death there on their bed. You know, this was a very uh, difficult scene in their life. Now, when Moses ends up recovering, we see that he then leaves Zipporah and Gershom at the encampment as he continues to Egypt. He ends up meeting Aaron and they go off to Egypt. But Zipporah and Gershom, they're left there at this encampment, probably because Gershom is too sore from his circumcision. Uh, and Moses seems to probably indicate uh, instruct them to go back to Jethro because uh, he just can't deal uh, with uh, the, the the mess that's going on there uh, with his family life. Zippor is pregnant. Little Gershom has just been circumcised. He doesn't know what's going to happen when they get to Egypt, whether or not Pharaoh will kill him or what's going to happen. So he sends them back uh, to the safe, safety of Jethro and so that he can focus on the mission and the calling uh, that God has placed on him. And so uh, we're going to see, uh, next time we see them, we see them in Exodus 18 when Jethro, uh, after Moses has liberated uh, Israel from Egypt, Jethro brings back Zipporah and Gershom and little Eleazar, who's now born at this time. He brings them to meet Moses. And I imagine that um, Zipporah, um, yeah, she was probably glad to see that Moses was alive after confronting Pharaoh, but she was, uh, I imagine, still very much upset at having to circumcise Gershom and then being left by Moses while she was pregnant and caring for her very sore toddler and having to be sent back to uh, her father's house. Whatever the case may be, we do not see Zipporah or these two boys very much uh, after they're reunited with Moses uh, in Exodus 18. And so, again, I just feel as we look at that, that gives a lot of um, more complete understanding of kind of who Moses is, what's going on in his in his family life and, and the real struggles that he faces that 
many of us face as well, you know, marital conflict and struggles with uh, parenting and, and, and the callings that God places on our life, the responsibility that God places on, his, on our lives. Moses uh, felt many of those very same things as well. Now, we next see Moses as he leads the people in uh, to Mount Sinai, and it's there that uh, they meet God on the mountain. Now, it's uh, here that the Israelites camp for about a year, maybe a little bit over a year, as they receive the law of God. Now, during this time, Moses uh, makes many trips up and down the mountain to speak to God and to the people of Israel and act kind of as a uh, intermediary between these two parties, these two parties who uh, normally are at odds, you know, holy God and unholy people. And Moses is uh, the bridge builder in between them. And there are a total of seven trips uh, that Moses makes up and down the mountains. Again, uh, seven is a very unique and special number in the uh, Hebrew Bible. And so uh, make that uh, make of that what you will. Uh, but there are at least seven trips that Moses makes up and down the mountains. Now, the first one is that um, God tells Moses uh, that he wants to make a covenant uh, with the people of Israel. So Moses goes up to the mountain. There God speaks to Moses and says, hey, listen, I want to make an agreement. I want to enter into a relationship, a promise uh, with the people of Israel. A lot of scholars see what transpires here between God and Israel. And it's almost a marriage covenant. It's like a marriage ceremony where God proposes to Israel, they accept, and they enter into this uh, marital covenant. So uh, we also then see the second time as um, Moses goes down, he tells the people what God wants. He wants to um, join with them in this relationship. They agree to that. Moses goes back up to God and lets them know uh, of their reply, their agreement to enter into this relationship. God then tells Moses to go and tell the people to consecrate themselves, purify themselves, because he's going to show up tomorrow in a powerful way. This is, again, if this is a marriage type thing, this is what a lot of in Hebrew culture they would do after there was an agreement of marriage, the bride would then go and cleanse herself and prepare herself to enter into uh, the marriage ceremony with her bridegroom. The third trip up the mountain, Moses and Aaron both go up to the mountain, and there they receive the Ten Commandments of God. But they don't receive it on tablets just yet. This is just the verbal uh, uh, telling of God to Aaron and Moses of the Ten Commandments. Then uh, the fourth trip, uh, Moses goes up to the mountain and he receives additional law. This is in addition to the Ten Commandments. This is, uh, relates to personal property, how we interact with one another, and things of that nature. Then we see uh, a, another major trip when Moses goes up to the mountain, where he goes with Aaron, Aaron's sons, and then 70 leaders of Israel. And there, not just Moses and Aaron, but all the, the, the leaders of Israel they see God. Now, again, we're not told exactly what that looks like other than they see the image of God as he is uh, seated on his throne. And it looks like underneath uh, him where his feet are, uh, there's this blue uh, um, stone looking color. And it, it really gives the picture of God um, seated and throned over all of creation, over the world. Um, is kind of what it looks like. And they end up having a meal there with God, which is a very intimate thing of um, connection and relationship between them and God. And then the leaders go back down while Moses and Joshua go up even further up the mountain. And then Moses stays there with God for 40 days and 40 nights. There he receives the stone commandments uh, from God, which also include he receives the instructions for the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the altar, the priestly garments, and all that sort of stuff. But then when he comes back down from the mountain, that's when he sees Israel worshiping 
the golden calf. And then he gets upset. He breaks uh, the tablet, uh, tablets. He, he, um, he, he condemns the people for their idolatry. And then he returns up the mountain to intercede for the people. Uh, and then the last time he goes up to the mountain uh, there, instead of God giving him the tablets, Moses is instructed by God to chisel out uh, a new set of tablets uh, to replace the ones that were broken. From there, the people of Israel then begin to wander across the wilderness towards the promised land. Um, and along the way, they uh, encounter many different obstacles and hardships along the way. They battle the Amalekites, the Midianites, the Amorites, the Canaanites. Uh, sometimes they won, sometimes they lost. Uh, but this just, again, prepares them for the battles that they're going to face once they get into the promised land. The last thing we see is Moses uh, not being able to enter the promised land. He goes up to Mount Nebo. Uh, God shows him the promised land, but says he can't go in there. In fact, in Deuteronomy 34, verses 5 through 7, it says that so Moses, the servant of God, died there in the land of Moab, just as the Lord had said. The Lord buried him in a valley near Beth Peor in Moab. But to this day, no one knows the exact place. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyesight was clear and he was strong as ever. That's all we hear about Moses at his death. But then uh, later in the New Testament, in Jude chapter 1, verse 9, the only other reference we see about Moses' death is this strange little occurrence where it says, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when they disputed about the body of Moses, dared not to bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. And so that's the only other example we, uh, or passage that we see about the life of Moses is that Michael and uh, uh, Satan argued and fought over the body of Moses what, um, for whatever reason. We're not told why they were fighting over it. Uh, some speculate that that's because Moses ends up showing up as one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation at the end of time, and that uh, um, they, uh, Michael was there to protect his body from Satan trying to defile it to keep him from doing that. We're not really told. This tends to come from, again, Jewish tradition, uh, that Jude takes and, and, and writes as an illustration of his main teaching there in Jude. But regardless, that's the story of Moses. That's what we see uh, regarding this man of faith and how God used him. The takeaway that I want to leave each and every one of y'all with as we think through uh, the life of Moses is that God gives us all abilities and passions to be used for good or for evil. God gave Moses a passion for justice, that when he saw people being abused and victimized, that he couldn't just stand by, you know, whether it be uh, with the Hebrews that were being beaten by their taskmaster and he went and killed the Egyptian, whether it be the women at the well uh, that were being abused by the shepherds and Moses had to intervene and protect them, whether that be the the Israelites being enslaved to Egypt. You just go through the litmus uh, or go through the list and you see time and time again that Moses wanted to uh, bring justice into this world. And God loved that and wanted to use that for his purposes. So whatever God has placed on your heart, however he's gifted you, use that uh, for his good work and turn that into something that brings glory to God. Well, we're going to stop there for tonight. Uh, I hope that you uh, will take what we've talked about and think on it throughout the week. And I hope you'll join us again next week as we continue to look at Heroes of Faith. Take care and God bless.